In Luke 14, verse number 25, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's not your typical southern 20th, 21st century evangelistic appeal. Already, before I even get into the the text, you already see the difference of what Jesus called people to versus so much of what we call people to. And I'm at a place in my life, and I know Pastor Dustin would sign off on this as co-lead pastor of this assembly, where we're not going to give a gospel presentation or any message that suits the tastes of the preconditioned tongues of the people but we're going to give what the Word of God says because that's the only thing that does us any good. And so let's pray for faith in this room today. And I want to tell you, this is not a message of condemnation to anybody. It isn't. But it may be a message of conviction. And the only reason that God convicts us is because He wants us to bring out of something lesser and bring us into something greater. So let's give Him thanks and let's prepare our hearts. Father, very simply, Your Word is so strong and so true. I just ask that when we hear it right now, we'll hear it with faith. Lord, I pray for those listening online. I pray, Lord, that you will reach into living rooms or hotel rooms or cars or wherever they're listening online and that they will sense your presence like we sense it right now. And I pray, Jesus, just remove the barriers in our minds, hearts, and lives that prevent us from coming fully to you. In Christ's name, amen. And be seated. Thanks. The words aren't hard to understand, but they are hard to align with. The message of repentance or coming to faith in Jesus Christ, I just like the word surrender because it it fits the motif of, of when I got saved. It makes sense to me, so I use that word a lot. But whatever you want to call it, let, let's just see what Jesus said because we're not pulling this out of context. And you're going to see that he said it to a group of people who were in some measure interested in being attached to him. And it's amazing to me the difference between the Son of God and his earthly ministry and a lot of us in our earthly ministries. 
When the crowds grow in our earthly ministries, we start thinking a little bit too on a complicated level. We, we tend to get a little clever. We kind of want to nuance what we say in order to maybe preserve the crowd. Now, I'm not saying I'm guilty of that or Pastor Dustin is, but preachers in general, we would prefer to preach to 5,000 than to five most of the time. That's just human nature. Jesus, we're going to see, of course, is a completely different um, preacher than we. So look at the pointed statement from Jesus in verses 25, 26, and 27. The pointed statement begins with this clearly uh, evidenced aspect of him. He was not enamored with superficial acceptance. Jesus was not enamored with superficial acceptance. Where do I get that from? From verse 25. Everything that's about to follow is in the context of verse 25 where it says, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them. Now, as I've already mentioned, in the context of Jesus gaining notoriety in his day, the miracles, the words, the resistance to the religious hypocrites and the, uh, the power brokers among the Pharisees, Jesus' fame was spreading and spreading. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have Facebook. It was word of mouth. And people were listening to his words and beholding his works, and the crowds began to grow. But you're going to find out as you read the Gospels and you look at the earthly ministry of Jesus and his lifetime, he never cared about the crowd size. As a matter of fact, you're going to find a couple of times where he intentionally pulled out of his holster, his arsenal, the most difficult messages that he would preach, and it comes, as defined by the gospel writers, as, as happening when the crowds were getting big. So the hardest words that Jesus typically preached to the masses came not with a few people in the room or a few people on the field, but it came when the crowds were growing. The intention of the Lord seems to be, I'm not interested in gathering a superficial crowd of people. I'm looking for disciples that will follow me unto the death and advance my mission. And so that is a tactic that he used, and he's about to use it right here. So he's not enamored with superficial acceptance, and he was clear about his expectations. Listen to the words of your Savior here. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in verse 26. Watch this. As the crowds were going, here's his message. If anyone is coming to me and does not hate, and I'm going to explain that in a moment, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, on a superficial reading of this, on a surface layer, we're going to say, did Jesus just tell me to hate people? It's an old um, Hebrew way of speaking. It was common in Jesus' day. And what he's meaning by saying, if anyone does not hate, it really incorporates the idea of you love one thing so much that any lesser love appears to be his hate. He is addressing the distance between loving him foremost and loving other things less. And so the intensity of that is ratcheted up when he says your love, in effect he's saying your love for me must be so great that your love for your parents appears as hate. Your love for your spouse appears as hate. Your love for your children appears as hate, and your love for your own life appears as hate. It's, a, it's just a, a verbal way of employing um, the intensity of his command of, to the degree that we're to be loyal to him and love him. Well, well, let's look at what he actually said. He mentions that we have to be willing to have him as the foremost love above our mother and our father. That was our first love. 
for those of you that grew up in a very healthy home, and really at the beginning, children, they adore their parents in a, in a healthy environment, in a non-abusive environment, in a nurturing environment, there is this first instinctual love of a child towards the parent, and it grows as that healthy home nurtures that, it grows and grows, and it will continue to grow unless there comes an occasion where that love is betrayed. But our mother and our father are our earliest and our first love. But he also talks about our nearest love, our spouse. He's preaching primarily to men here, and he says, I want you to know if you're thinking about coming to me, that you have to love me more than you love your wife. Now, that's no small statement. I spent the weekend with a precious family, uh, a rehearsal Friday night and the wedding yesterday, two Christian young people that were brought together by God's providence and uh, serving the Lord together when they were married yesterday. And it was just such a wonderful thing. But do you know that already woven into their hearts is this understanding? Yes, I love her, my new wife. Yes, I love him, my new husband. But I love Jesus more than I love her. And she says, I love Jesus more than I love him. That is not a natural thing. That is a spiritual thing. And at times, that is one of the most difficult things for a couple to flesh out because I've seen this teaching misused where somebody says, well, I'm outpacing my spouse spiritually, so I'm going to leave her and I'm going to find another one that can keep up with me. And I've seen women do the same thing. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not giving you permission to break off from your spouse because you're a little holier than they are. But what he is saying is this, ultimately, if the will of God plays out in a couple's life to where a spouse is taken out of the picture. Maybe it's through death. Maybe it's through abandonment. Maybe it's through some other extreme situation that we can't give nuance to right now, but it is inevitable that that spouse is left, the one who remains is left alone. And it's a test of that individual to say, but Jesus, I will not get bitter against you. I will not betray you. I will not walk away from you. I will not lose my testimony because your love for me and my love for you has always been greater than the nearest love that I had to my spouse. This is a tough one. Let me pull on your heartstrings with the third thing that he mentions. Jesus says, you have to love me so much that your valid love for your children appears as hate. Children? Did he have to go there? He went there. Why did he go there? because he knows the human heart. He's not playing with us here. He knows that, okay, well, we can, we can work through mom and dad. God bless you, mom and dad, I love you. You can work through a spouse, but if you've been married long enough, there's already some things about your spouse that you don't love. I'm, I'm wrecking your ideology here, but there are some things about your spouse. So, so you can kind of say, well, yeah, of course, I love Jesus more, but your kids, I mean, our kids are just, they, you know, they came from us. There's that, that intensity of instinctual love and Jesus says this, that fondest love that you have for your children cannot, uh, cannot ever usurp the love and loyalty you have for me. Uh, that plays out every day when we're raising our kids. Sometimes because we love our kids, we want what's comfortable for them. And how many of you could testify that God's will uh, for your family and for your children is not always comfortable? Sometimes you have to take your kids into discomfort. Sometimes you have to stretch your kids. Sometimes your kids have to pay the price for the gospel's sake, and they don't always like to do it. And Jesus often will, will just question our hearts saying, what's more important, what I am calling you unto in your love for me or your children's comfort? And so these are very practical things. But here's the biggie, and this is what the message is about. Let me tell you the most stubborn love in your life. It's that love you have for yourself. 
I know that we have come a long way since we were born again. Isn't that good, that wonderful process of sanctification? But do you know that there's still somewhere inside of you, there beats this little savage heart that will fiercely die the death in order to protect self? Say, Jeff, I don't think so. Really, how you doing in traffic last week? How you doing in the election season? When everybody's posting garbage about, oh, man, I made the mistake of going in there yesterday. And I just, I just posted, a, I thought it was a well-written thing, and, and people came out. I was like, quit hijacking my Facebook page, man. But the point is, is this, we all have this little savage heart that will pull out a sword, not all the time, but you find the right issue. You, you, you're tempted in, the, in, the, in the, the area of your weakness where somebody pulls or a personality type or a certain situation, and you will find out that self is still alive and well in you. And Jesus says, I actually am going to deal with self because what, remember the context here. He's not just talking about how to walk out this life. He's setting conditions for being his disciple. He is saying that if you're going to follow me, your core commitment needs to be, your, your level of surrender needs to be that I, Jesus Christ your Lord, am so highly exalted above every lesser loyalty in your life that those lesser loyalties, though they be valid in their own right, they appear to be as hate. And he's literally teaching not that we should loathe ourselves. I've seen enough of that religious spirit that makes me want to wretch sometimes where, well, I'm just a worm, I'm just a worm. And, you know, listen, that's just a false display of pride. That's not what Jesus is, is asking here. But he is going to tell us the condition for being his disciple is anything but convenient. And so we'll get to that in a moment. Now, Jesus was clear about his expectations. He says, you can't be my disciple if you live out a life loving anything else more than me. That is so intense. He, he said that in the midst of great crowds flocking to him. I mean, you, you talk about how to thin out a crowd. He's doing it. I mean, Jesus, hey, we're not here to hear that message. Do that, do that fish and chips thing again that you did on the hillside. We're, we're hungry. We'd like to see some of that. And Jesus is not interested in superficial crowds coming near him. By the way, that's still true today. He doesn't care how big your church is. He is not interested in, nor impressed with, uh, you know, the number, the head counting that goes on in the sanctuary. He's much more interested in the devotion that's going on in the heart. And so let's go further. He, he, is, he was unwilling to be misunderstood, verse 27. Lest we missed it, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross, this is the death to self, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So in, just in case we misinterpreted it in, in verse 26, he summarizes it in verse 27. He's saying you have got to renounce yourself. And this renunciation, he brings in the symbolism of the cross, which by the way, he had not gone to yet. So we're looking back and we kind of get a little bit of an understanding. He hadn't gone there yet. But let me remind you of this. In the day of Jesus in the early church, the cross was their version of the electric chair. It was an instrument of execution. It wasn't symbolic and holy and beautiful like it is to us. I mean, I've got one hanging behind me on the wall, and I like to look at it because it centers me. It reminds me that what took place on that cross 2,000 years ago is really the anchor of my eternity because of the one who died there. But in Jesus' day, the cross was a repulsive thing, a hideous thing, a disgusting thing. 
Nobody would have worn a, a cross around a chain on their neck at that time. And I'm not against that if you have one of those. But what I'm saying is it would be like you going around wearing a T-shirt with, with a picture of an electric chair and a victim in it. It's so, it would have been socially atrocious at that time. And so when Jesus is saying this, this is, these crowds are coming. He says, if you really want to go with me, you need to be prepared to go all the way unto the death. And in order to show that you are willing to die, pick up your cross now as you follow me. Because, in, of course, in the first century, um, physical death was a very real possibility for the early church. Let me ask you, let me ask out loud what a lot of you may already be rehearsing in your head. Hey, Jeff, can, can I stop you for a minute? Because isn't this about discipleship and not really about salvation? Isn't this about that next level? Because we come to Jesus, we believe, and we're saved, and we're forgiven. And what you're talking about is that next level Christianity. I've heard that so often. I remember that being taught to me right after I got saved. I have an issue with it. Let me tell you why. Jesus never preached it. Jesus never validated a two-tier or three-tier or four-tier approach to the kingdom. When Jesus and the apostles wrote, you're going to find this consistent theme, all or nothing. That is the theme and the presentation, the articulation of the claims of Jesus Christ on our lives. And it is only in probably the last couple of hundred years, primarily in Western culture, where there has been this presentation of just believe in Jesus so you can get your sins forgiven and you can go to heaven when you die. And by the way, if you're really interested in going further with it, we offer some classes. When I think of the price that he paid, and this is not about shaming us, I, I just want you to think through this with me. More importantly, I really want you to think through what is written because ultimately you're not going to be judged by what Jeff said in the pulpit. You're going you're to be judged by the standard given by God's infallible word. And, it, and if the word of the Lord is that Jesus Christ has said, you can't be my disciple. By the way, for you Greek scholars, you would know that the verbiage there and it actually indicates in the Greek that it is impossible for you to be my disciple. It's not you shouldn't be or it's going to be difficult. Jesus is saying, without you picking up your cross and following me, it's impossible. In other words, you aren't if you haven't. It's intense. And so as we go through this, the question is asked, you know, is this what Jesus is requiring to be saved? Can I be saved but not have to go through that cross-bearing thing? Let me just say this, that the bottom line is this, the very question reflects that our focus is on us and what we can get from him instead of being on Jesus and what he desires. The very question says, wait a minute, hold on a second, I need to know what I can get out of this. And I would borrow Paul's words uh, to the church at Rome, who are we that replies against God? Who are we to say something like that to the Lord? Does it not matter that regardless of what the technicality is, the forensic of whether or not we make it into heaven or not without our cross, does it not strike our hearts that Jesus said, this is what I want you to do? That ought to motivate us. It's not, well, wait a minute now, let me, let me bargain my way through this with you. Listen, isn't the heartbeat of the Christian, I want to know what you want 
And as much as it required, as required of me, I want to do it because you're you and I love you and I worship you and I adore you and I love you more than anything. But the very, thing, the very question that says, now wait a minute, man, I'm not real sure that we have to do that to get that. That exposes the fact that we've been in, uh, influenced by a man-centered gospel. And so what I'm trying to do is get us back to this. He said, Jeff, why are you doing this? There's two reasons. For genuinely born-again Christians who are still waffling on this issue of full surrender, you're not happy. You're not a happy Christian. You're happy in other things, but you're not happy in Jesus. When we sing that song, All I Have is Christ, you're like, not really. Not really. It is kind of odd. I love that song, by the way. I was so excited that we sang it this morning. But the fact of the matter is a lot of us were lying when we sang it. I mean, the, the point is this, if everything is stripped away, all I have is Christ. We get that. But man, we fight hard not to let anything get stripped away. And so we never experience the power of all I really have is Jesus. Why is that? Because we haven't surrendered. So I'm talking about Christians over there on that side, not of the sanctuary, but on this hand, that I'm talking about Christians that just haven't fully surrendered. They're genuinely born again, but they've never been confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ's lordship over their life. And so they're living in a, a state of somewhat of ignorance. But then you have a group of people on the other hand that just say, I'm not surrendering. But, and, and it's almost like we hijack God and we got his omnipotent arm twisted up behind his back and we say, no, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. And we take two little cherry picked verses and we remove the rest of the gospel and we say, you got to let me into heaven. And sometimes I hear his omnipotent voice saying, oh really? Do I now? So on a very serious note, my opinion, you don't have to agree with me. I always give you a disclaimer when I'm going to give you my opinion. You don't have to agree with this. It is my opinion that many people in our churches who have professed with the lips, maybe even been baptized, have rebel hearts and refuse to surrender. I used to be that guy. There's some in the room today that were raised in solid Christian homes that went through the motions, church kids, ministry kids, went through the motions, prayed the prayer, but had rebel hearts. Why? Because picking up a cross and dying to self is not something that human nature will ever do. It takes a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and Him opening our eyes. So you mad at me yet? Not yet? Okay, there's still time. Hold on. Hey, listen. Um, Well, you know, I mean... I'm not doing this in a mean spirit. I'm on a rescue mission. Somebody needs to hit us with this stuff. I think time's getting short. I don't think that, I mean, there's a reason Jesus said when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? So let's go into verses 28 through 32, because Jesus is, some of you are um, image thinkers. You, 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 Jeff, I'm hearing your words, but give me something I can visualize. Well, Jesus does that. Verse 28 through 32, here's the powerful illustrations from Jesus. He's about to illustrate what he just said in verses 25, 26, and 27. And the first one is an illustration from the world of construction. Verse 28. Jesus is going to give a metaphor here. And he says, which of you who desires to build a tower does not first, you might want to circle that word first, first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, but wasn't able to finish. Notice this. Jesus is talking to a large crowd of people. He is 
already addressed, and we'll address one more time in these passages, this call to pick up your cross and die. And then he gives an illustration. He's saying, all of you, in, in essence, all of you out there in the crowd, not all of you are really serious about coming to me. The unpacking of that would be that there were people there that day that were interested in the miracles that he did, because who wouldn't want to see a miracle? They were poor, living hand to mouth. So I joked earlier about the fish and chips. But Jesus actually said later on, you're following me because you want your bellies full. He actually told some that. And so there are a lot of reasons that people attach themselves to Jesus that don't have anything to do with his ultimate glory and lordship. They're just kind of going along. Maybe they were trained up in it as a kid. Maybe it's just part of the Southern culture. Maybe they're there to make business connections. Maybe they just want to feel some guilt relief on Sundays for what they did on Saturday. There's a hundred reasons why people might want to attach themselves to Jesus. But Jesus says this, remember, if, if, if you want to come to me, if you desire to come to me, then let me give you an illustration. It's like a guy building a tower. They would build these towers overseeing vineyards back in the day of Jesus. And that tower would be a place where the, the vineyard owner would look out. He'd see what was growing. He could see times predators or thieves. And so that tower was an important piece of construction. And it was also hard to build. Not The average guy couldn't just build one. And Jesus says, before the, the owner goes to build it, he does the math. He finds out what's required. He knows how high, how much it's going to take, how long it's going to take. And he also knows that after laying the foundation, which is the easy part, he knows he needs to finish it. And Jesus is using that metaphor in the context of people potentially coming to him. And this is what he's saying. This is so different than what we do in a lot of our churches. He's saying, hey, you need to really think through this. You need to really think about how you want to finish before you even start to begin. Because Jesus doesn't grade on a curve in the sense of, okay, well, you got started, maybe you didn't understand, so we'll just kind of, we'll kind of, uh, we'll kind of morph it to, to your ability. Jesus gives the same clarion call to all of us. He's saying, you've got to renounce everything if you want to be my disciple. And so, here in this spot, he's saying, before you commit to me, you need to know what I expect. I, I want Newbridge, as much as it depends on me, to love people enough to tell them the truth and never to manipulate them emotionally to get a decision out of them. Um, I, I would love to see 15 people get saved this morning. I would love it. There, there's something about seeing people come forward. It moves the heart. It makes you aware that perhaps God is doing something. I want that. I want as many genuine conversions as God will allow. But I can tell you this. We will never change our approach to give the appearance of people having a life-changing, eternity-sealing encounter with God. We're not going to change the message. We're not going to change the technique. God is able to reach the hardest heart in this place, and he doesn't need, you know, successive G chords to make it happen. I mean, he just doesn't need, he doesn't need for me to wave my hanky and, or breathe fire and brimstone. That's just not, he's, he's actually does a good job at, at, at bringing people to repentance. The lack of musician in me is wondering, is a G chord anything? Does that, okay, good. See, that's grace. That's why we pray over sermons for moments like that, because I thought I just lost every music major in the room, but it worked out. Uh, friends, I, I don't know if you've ever considered uh, where you are with the Lord and how you began and how you're finishing. You say, well, Jeff, I, I don't think I'm finishing. Well, how do you know? Does anybody really know their finish line or the date that they're going to 
return to dust? Of course not. So we're always finishing. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, hey, before you ever enter into this thing with me, don't, don't do it hastily. You need to understand that it has to be finished or it's not valid. I am unashamedly a proponent of the perseverance of the saints. I believe that to be a biblical doctrine that the truly converted will finish in faith. But not because God does it all. So I just lost half the Calvinist in the room. Not because God does it all. There is the tension between God's sovereign decree and the security that we have in Jesus Christ, but also for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean I keep myself saved, but I'm going to tell you this. A genuine faith that saves will genuinely behave. That means their actions come into accordance with the profession of faith. And so Jesus is saying, I don't want to hear it from your lips if you're not sure about it in your heart. And he's literally saying, just wait until you can count the cost and make that decision because you don't want to start something and then all that see you begin, begin to mock you. Well, let's just follow it up from the illustration from the world of construction and let's look at the illustration from the world of conflict here. He's going to give a battle scene metaphor. An illustration from the world of conflict, verse 31 to 32. Jesus gives a second one. He says, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first? Both illustrations use the word first at the onset. And deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. That is an interesting uh, illustration that the Lord gives. The, the picture seems to be that, well it is, a, a scene of a battle. And the person wondering whether or not they're going to go into the battle is actually numerically at the disadvantage. What do we learn from that? Because in the illustration, we're the person against whom the enemy is coming. We're the person that needs to make the decision. We're the person that has to decide very soon whether or not we're going to enter into this battle or if we're just going to seek the easiest path of least resistance. And so we're outnumbered. That just is a very subtle thing, but I want you to know something. It, it describes the reality that you cannot live the Christian life victoriously in your own power. You can't. The enemy's too great. You got a threefold enemy. You got the world and the devil, but you got an enemy that you woke up with and looked in the mirror at this morning, and that's the flesh. And so you're, you're outnumbered in, in, a, in a strict sense, three to one at the very least. So as that king was outnumbered, and he's got a, a powerful enemy coming against him. The issue, the call is, do I go to battle for this thing or not? Rather than going in half-heartedly, rather than going in unprepared, rather than going in ignorantly, their decision has to be made. And if you're not willing to do it, look at what Jesus puts in the illustration. He says, this king, if he doesn't want to do it, he's going to have to go and make peace with the enemy. What does that mean? It, it typifies this, that the choice is, either fight for the glory of Jesus and his kingdom with everything that you are and everything that you have, or go ahead and be intellectually honest and say, no, I'm just going to try to make peace with the world that I live in. Stand for nothing, count for nothing, eternal. Just glide on through. Don't make any waves. Don't give any resistance. Don't offer any rescue. Just under the radar, get what you can get out of life, and then Let's just see what happens when life ends. Now, none of us would ever sign off on that. And yet I think that 
because we don't often think through what Jesus actually calls us unto, it may very well be that what I just described describes our walk with Christ. Let me just give you a statement. I think it'll be up on the screen. We may give ourselves in surrender to the world, or we may bow in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are not allowed, however, to believe that we can do both of these things with our lives. In this illustration, Jesus is saying, either fight with everything you've got because you decided to at the onset. And by the way, grace makes today a day of onset. If you say, well, Jeff, I've been saved 10 years and I haven't done this. It's a beautiful thing about grace. It's a constant restart button. The beautiful thing about grace is God says, I'll just apply grace today and we can forget everything up to this point. You want to commit today? You want to surrender today? You want to get real today? Let's just hit reset. That's awesome. And so I don't know where we all are. I have to gauge my own heart on this stuff. Listen, I live in the same world you do. Preaching doesn't sanctify anybody. Pastoring doesn't sanctify anybody. I mean, don't say amen to this because you'll hurt my feelings, but pastors are some of the most carnal people in the world at times. I said don't say amen. (laughs) Preaching doesn't do anything to tame the flesh. The cross does. Let me give you this. These won't be up on your screen, but these are important verses. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul, who had a better resume than anybody in here prior, prior to his conversion, he says this, if you want to know something about me, know this, I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet it is not me who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me, and the life that I now live in my flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I'm crucified. Paul would, would really open up the understanding uh, in the church about what it means to live a crucified life. He wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter number 6. He's saying, now listen, he's just talking to all Christians. He's not trying to explain it like I am this morning because there was no debating it back then. He says in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to our sin. Verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. By the way, carrying your cross is actually key to your sanctification. Because if you're trying to be sanctified in your own power, that's why you keep going back to porn, sir. Because you're just trying it by willpower. You need the power of the cross. You'll be delivered from that. Ladies, and, and I always go to porn for the guys and gossip for the women. Listen, there's a whole gamut in between. But ladies, if you're constantly grieved because yet again you belittled a sister with your tongue, you said something, you've gotten so good at it that you can cloak it, you can wrap it up, you can put a bow tie on it, you can hand it to your friend, and it doesn't feel like gossip until the Holy Spirit says, what did you just do? You say, I'm trying, I'm sorry, Lord, I won't do it anymore. Well, you will unless you die. You've got to die to that. How do you die? Not by trying harder. No, it's the exact opposite. Surrender. By not trying harder in your flesh, but by saying, oh, God, be merciful unto me, the sinner. Oh, wretched man, wretched woman that I am. Who's going to deliver me from these things? So Paul said in verse number 9 of Romans 6, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives unto God. So you must consider yourselves also dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does all that mean? It means that your identity with Jesus, your full surrender to Jesus, is also the the gateway, if I can use that word, by which you, you, you receive his power, his power to die from sin, and his power to rise up from that sinful impulse within you. 
It is a supernatural, spiritual occurrence. It's not because you went through your ninth Bible study this week. Listen, I'm a big Bible guy, you know that. But until you surrender, you can stuff your brain through it full of the best theological teaching that the world has to offer, but unless you surrender, it's worthless. You will not have the joy, you will not have the victory, but if you do surrender, the life of Christ begins to be operative in your life. Say, well, Jeff, how do I surrender? The first thing you got to do is look at the cross that says, I'm going to love Jesus more than I love my mother and father, more than I love my spouse, more than I love my children, and most importantly, more than I love me. And it's the scariest step. It's the scariest step. Why? Because it feels like you're losing yourself. And guess what? You're giving yourself in surrender to the one who will reframe who you really are, and he's going to give you back to you. But it will be in him. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory, Colossians chapter 3. Y'all with me? Is it like a fire hydrant this morning? I'm trying to wrap it up, but I just really wanted to go there. And then, and then in Galatians 6, Paul says this, and I'll move on. Be it far from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Uh, I, I need this. Man, the world has a lot of appeal. And, and, and God doesn't just want to bless us with, you know, fluffy, just mystical kind of things. Sometimes he wants to bless you with a tangible material thing. That's, it's not wrong to have stuff. But most of us can't strike the balance. Most of us get a little stuff, we want more stuff. Why? Because we're not satisfied in Jesus. And then if we lose a little of our stuff, we are, I think uh, the Hebrew is, we are freaked out. Amen? We just, I can't believe I lost a, a part of my stuff. Really? Did you lose Jesus? No, but I lost this, that, or the other. I know. But maybe we hold on too tightly so that when it is taken from our hands, it, it just hurts too much. So let's get to the end of the the passage, just one verse left and we'll be done. The undivided commitment to Jesus. So here he says it again. And, and guys, please, just, let's just read it. Don't make the Bible say something it doesn't say. He said this. Jesus said, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And again, that's that Greek um, nuance to the, to the word cannot be my, that phrase cannot be to my disciple. He's saying it's, it's impossible. It doesn't work that way. No matter how much we want it to work that way, no matter who taught us that it works that way, come into salvation. And then for anybody that wants to level two, and then for the, you know, the 1% of the spiritual wealthy, uh, level three, <laughs> Jesus comes in and says, I actually leveled the ground at the foot of the cross, and that's where I meet anyone. And if you want to be with me, you're going to have to humble yourself in full surrender. You're going to take up your cross. You say, well, Jeff, what do I got to do? Do I got to sell my boat and sell my house and grow my hair long and abstain from wine? Do I got to become a Nazarite? Do I got to quit eating pork? What do I, what do I have to do? Um, that is certainly not my job to tell you, but I'm going to tell you something. If the Holy Spirit tells you to quit eating pork, you better do it. If he tells you to sell your boat, you better sell it and not wait eight months till you can get a premium return on it. If, if he tells you, oh, parents are going to be mad. If he tells you to grow out your hair like a Nazarite, 
Um, well, I'm not going to hedge. You better do it. I am so in trouble with that one. Some teenager is going to say, Dad, I know we've been arguing it all summer, but Pastor Jeff said I, I could grow my hair out because the Holy Spirit told me to. <laughs> Children, obey your parents. Amen. We'll just go with something valid there. But, but the point I'm trying to make is this. I, I don't think that you know the specifics of what your cross is until you uh, step into the surrender of what your cross is. We, we don't ever get to surrender because we're trying to get negotiate the specifics. And, and, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does not negotiate the specifics of your cross. He's calling you to surrender. And so what is that? I would just say, what did Jesus do when it was time for him to embrace the cross? He was yielded to the Father, completely yielded to the Father. The scriptures say that it wasn't some kind of just technical thing he had to go through. Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful in Gethsemane. All his disciples left him. That was part of his cross. He was absolutely and utterly alone. I'll just say this. For some, there's the call in this hour for you to rejoice in your solitary situation. You may be single and saying, I'm going to be happy when I get a mate. I would encourage you, press into Jesus because he's your happiness, not Mr. or Mrs. Wright, said the married guy. I know. There's also the issue of, well, when I get this off my table, when I get this, when I get this, delays so often detour us from the cross. God is just saying, when it was time for Jesus to take the cross, he didn't say a whole lot. He didn't. He didn't fight in the flesh. He didn't try to cement his right over an earthly kingdom. Being found in, in, in fashion as a man, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so he laid on it and he stretched out. And he let Roman hands take nine-inch nails and hammer them into his... He made those hands. As creator, he made those hands of those Romans that held... He made the tree that became the wood of that hammer. He made the ore that became the iron of those spikes. Everything belonged to him, and yet he did not drive down a claim and saying, you will not. He surrendered to the will of the Father. That's why the Father had already pre-testified, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. And Jesus gave himself and surrendered, and then ultimately bearing the full brunt of our rejection and death. If you're not here today, or if you're here today without Christ, I, I want you to know, Jesus cried out, it's a haunting word from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever gone into the emotion of that? Have you ever thought through the humanity of that? Jesus experienced, in whatever way we can describe it, the fullness of what it means to be rejected by God. A rejection that I deserved. A rejection that I'll never experience. Why? Because Jesus took up his cross and stretched out there and died there and was forsaken there and gave up the ghost there, paid it all. Hallelujah. Three days later, the Father said amen to Jesus saying, it is finished. Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross. Three days later, the Father said, amen, it is. 
And he brought his son up from the grave, triumphant over death and hell. And so now Jesus, as the resurrected, glorious, victorious, supreme ruler of all, the Savior, the Shepherd, the Redeemer, the King, the Master, oh, and he comes to you and to me. And he says, all that I've done, I've done that you might be with me for all of eternity, and all I ask of you in return is for you to live your vapor of a life with no hesitation for me. Don't, don't give yourself to lesser loyalties. Don't live out your life for lesser loves. Don't stall waiting on specifics. Go for surrender. The Lord takes pleasure in walking you through the specifics. It's not like an assignment or a syllabus. He's going to walk with you through it. You're going to take up your cross just like last week you took up your yoke. You got under his yoke. It's the same thing. He's going to walk with you. And so because we trust him and because he's supremely loving and he's good, we can understand that the cross carries a weight, but we can also understand that the, the weight will be carried by the Lord who has already shouldered most of it, and he invites you to enter into the process. He says, apart from that, you can't be his. It's the scariest step. So today, I'm, I'm not really asking you if you're saved, because that's a word that means too, mon too many different things to too many different people. I am going to ask you this, as the worship team comes on up, I'm done. Are you walking in surrender? Is it all or nothing? If it is, that's evidence that you are his. And may the Holy Spirit refresh you so deeply right now that in the midst of you carrying your cross, in the midst of all the unknowns, in the midst of the weight and the solitude and the isolation, the very fact that you are still carrying that cross is clear evidence that you are His. For any in the room that might be avoiding that, you do everything that you can in life to avoid, to avoid the cost Maybe, just maybe the Lord's just gently shined a spotlight on that today, not to condemn you, but to convict you. So that you say, Lord, and I'll close with this because I just can't stop. Paul said this, what? Know you not that you are not your own, but that you are bought with a price. We are not our own. Therefore, we cannot live as if we were our own. Therefore, Jesus' call to full surrender is spiritually reasonable. There's no lesser call that he places on our lives.